Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Like many of you, uh, I have a complicated relationship right now to anything that has the look and feel of news. Whether it is opening up the news app on my phone, whether it is scrolling past all of the raised tweets on my Twitter feed, uh, doing anything like that, going anywhere near the news feels like I'm playing a game of sadness roulette uh, where the odds are stacked against me, where it seems like every time we turn around, we're struck with something. Just last week, we spoke of the tragedies in in Buffalo and Laguna, and here we are again. Here we are again looking at the tragedy in Uvalde. And I don't know about you, but for me, in the face of things that just sort of keep coming like a waterfall of sorrow, it's easy for me to want to look away. It's easy for me to want to, to hide my eyes, to go, you know what, I'm, I'm just not going to, to see. I just don't want to look anymore. It's too much. And I think, first of all, I want to tell you, if you're feeling that this morning, you're probably not alone. You're probably not the only one that just, just wants it all to sort of go away. As we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, we're getting to the chapters that are somewhat like that as well. The chapters of the Gospel of Mark where, if we're being honest, we might want to look away. In Mark's account of the life of Jesus, Mark spends uh, 25% of the whole content of the book of Mark is spent on the last 72 hours of Jesus' life. In fact, this morning, we're going to look at the longest chapter in the book of Mark, chapter 14, and that chapter takes place in just about 12 hours. In just the span of of one day and one evening, Mark spends all this time talking to us about a Thursday. And so with 72 verses in the chapter, I promise you, I'm not going to be able to cover everything. In fact, what I'd like to do now is list for you all of the really good things in Mark chapter 14 that I will not be talking about. I'm not going to focus on the woman who gives up her family's life savings in order to honor Jesus. I'm not going to go into detail over the way that Jesus predicted how every single part of the Last Supper and the preparations for that is going to go. I won't be dealing with the institution of the Lord's Supper, its connection to the Passover meal. There's a lot there. And while it's rich and meaningful, Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is not what we're going to focus on, nor on the disciples' inability to pray for just an hour. That's in there too. This morning, I will make no conjecture about the first streaker ever recorded in human history. Mark 14 includes the first description of a streaker in recorded history. The first time somebody says, and that person ran away naked. I'm not going to make conjecture over who that is. Yes, I am. I think it's Mark. I think the author of the gospel is who that is. And I'm not going to go into detail on how many of the Sanhedrin's own laws they broke in the trial of Jesus that we're going to read about. 
or even how many of the laws from Leviticus and Deuteronomy that they broke, though they did. Rather, what I want to do this morning is focus on two other characters. Because as we walk through this chapter in Mark, what we see Mark doing is he is telling us the story of Jesus, but he is weaving together the story of two other men as well. He's weaving together the stories of Peter and Judas. Because as we read through this chapter, what we're going to see is that they are both exhibiting different types of denials, different types of lives that are formed by their action. And so as we read about this Thursday that leads up to the crucifixion of Jesus, what we're going to see is a real contrast between the betrayal of Judas and the denial of Peter. And this contrast between those two serves to remind us that the cost of following Jesus is high and that the redemption possible in Jesus is infinite. And so if you're able, I'd like to ask you to stand. Um, This is Mark 14. I'm going to read the entire thing, even though we're not going to deal with every section of it. I'd like us to hear God's word all together. It was now two days before Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. And Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. 
For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed, If it were possible, that the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him and at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who drew, uh, who stood by drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the let, let the scriptures be fulfilled. And he let all, they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all of the priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. 
And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men uh, testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. And the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. City Church is the Word of God, written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. Mark uses the literary device that we've seen him use several times as we've walked through this book. He kind of builds a, a layered cake or a, a sandwich with multiple layers, a club sandwich, if you will. And as we read this sort of story, he does that, but he does it just a bit differently. Instead of starting with a story and ending with the same story, he starts with Judas and then ends with Peter, highlighting and contrasting those two things together. And so it begins in our chapter with the leaders of the synagogue, with the leaders of the temple, looking for a way to arrest and to kill Jesus. But the problem is, is that might not be the world's most popular move. That might not be something that goes over well with the large crowds that have gathered inside of Jerusalem for Passover. And so they're a little bit stuck on what to do. And then along comes a spider. Along comes Judas, who is willing to deliver up Jesus on a silver platter for a bag of silver. And so they make a deal with Judas. But before we get there, there's one more step outside of Jerusalem that Jesus is going to make. He goes to the house of Simon the leper. And while he is there, a woman uh, breaks a jar of expensive nard. This is like a, a kind of oily balm um, that you would make out of the roots of trees in India. And she breaks this and anoints Jesus' head with it. In fact, Mark points out that this jar of nard was worth about 300 denarii or about a year's worth of wages for the average worker in 
Jerusalem. And so this woman is giving up what is probably her family's life savings. This is their 401k. This is the way that they can hold on to some wealth in case something bad happens and she gives it all to Jesus. Well, as soon as she does, some of the disciples start to murmur. Some of the disciples look at this extravagance. They look at this lavishness and say, imagine all the good we could have done with that money. Imagine all of the poor people we could have helped. And Jesus carefully and cautiously points out to them, you can help those who are in need at any time. You cannot anoint me for my death for much longer. And what she has done is the good thing, is the right thing. But what's interesting is John's gospel gives us a little bit more detail on what happens at this lunch. Because John says it's not just any of the disciples who are making the complaints here. It's actually Judas. And Judas isn't complaining about this being, sold, uh, this being sold and given to the poor because he's really passionate about mercy ministry. No, John tells us explicitly that Judas didn't want this to be given to Jesus, but wanted it to be sold because Judas kept the money. And Judas was a thief. But he doesn't say that. What does he do? Instead, he becomes indignant. Oh, what good we could have done with this money. And so we see our first lesson from Judas. We see the way that self-righteousness works and twists us. Self-righteousness twists us in such a way that we look around and all we can see is the sin and flaws of others. And all we refuse to see is the sin and flaw inside ourselves. We make others the objects of our criticism and disgust so that we can hide the sin and shame in our own lives. Judas wants to shame everyone else while showing himself to be honorable, even though he is not. You see, what happens is self-righteousness, this idea that we bring anything before God, this idea that others are bad and that we are good. Self-righteousness corrodes our ability to love our neighbor because it forces us to bring shame on others in order to earn honor for ourselves. And when we do that, we cannot love our neighbor. But self-righteousness doesn't only sabotage our relationship and ability to love others. Self-righteousness also sabotages our ability to love God. Because it, make, it refuses to be honest in his presence about sin. Judas refused to be honest about who he was, about what he was doing. And so we see the way that self-righteousness warps our heart to think that we are doing the right thing and everyone else is in the wrong. But we don't just see Judas being, being self-righteous. We see it going farther we get to see how deep his self-interest lies because after this lunch is when he goes to Jerusalem, when he enters the temple in order to cut a deal with the leadership, in order to cut a deal with the Sanhedrin. If he can't skim money off the top, he'll find another way to make his money. And so Judas shows us the ways that when our self-serving nature runs amok, it happens when our souls are unchecked by the gospel of Jesus. 
He arranges to sell Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the the fixed price for the transfer of a slave in the Old Testament. Now, almost all of us would say we would never do this. And I think that most of us are, are probably right in that. But how many of us allow our self-interest to trample over what God has told us to do? How many of us consider God's commands about the Sabbath when the work emails roll in on Sunday? How many of us spend our time daydreaming about what just $10,000 could do for us and our family? And how many of us spend our lives chasing that? More of us probably than want to admit it, myself included. And so the final way that Mark highlights Judas is his self-deception. After he agrees to betray Jesus, after he sets the plan in motion, he decides to go to the Last Supper. And he calls it the Last Supper and Jesus says, the what? Just the supper. It's a normal supper. Nothing bad's going on here. No, Judas is disingenuous. Judas goes and sits there with the disciples. I mean, we've all seen the Da Vinci painting and kind of maybe even had to take the art history class in college where you have to identify who is where and all of that. And and Judas is kind of on the outskirts. But if you read the gospels, as you read them all together, it seems that Judas was right next to Jesus. He was right beside him. And as Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, Judas feigns shock. Is it me? Just like everyone else. As everyone else is shocked by this information, Judas just sits there and pretends. His self-deception goes so deep as he shares this bread with Jesus, who he is about to betray. As he shares this wine with Jesus, who he is about to betray. As he shares the bitter herbs This level of disingenuousness should be flooring to us. Jesus confronts him directly with what's going to happen. And Judas just is like, oh, I don't know. Beloved, let's not hide our sin like this. Let's not allow our heart to be calloused in this way. The reason why Judas can't find forgiveness here and in the rest of his life, the reason why he can't find that is because he refuses to be honest with God about his sin. The thing that holds us back from experience the forgiveness and freedom that we have in Christ is that we are so often not honest about our sin. We're unwilling to confess and when we, our hearts are hardened in that way, that's where self-righteousness and self-service begin to grow. But the, the story progresses. As the chapter unfolds, Judas sort of fades out of the story after this. He becomes basically a plot device as it keeps going. But all of a sudden, we start to hear more about Peter. Because as they leave the upper room, as they head towards Gethsemane, Jesus begins to tell them that not only is one of them going to betray them, but all of them are going to abandon him. That all of them are going to be scattered to the wind. But Peter says no. I mean, look, Peter is nothing if not consistent. 
Jesus says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. And Peter says, over my dead body. Jesus says, all of you are going to betray me. And Peter says, uh-uh, no, I will never betray you, Jesus. I will never deny you. And Jesus says, no, Peter, in fact, tonight, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. And what, it, I mean, I mean, can you imagine Can you imagine walking with Jesus, Jesus himself saying, you're going to deny me. You say, no, I'm not. Him saying, yes, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And then telling Jesus, no, no, even if I have to die, I am going to follow you. I mean, it's the irony, the tragedy, all of it together. It's it's almost comical, except the part where it's tragic. And as we see this, we see in Peter something at work very similar to what's at work in Judas. Yes, we see the self-righteousness, but even more than that, what we see in Peter looks a lot more like self-assurance. He had a certainty in his heart that he was never going to deny Jesus. Where where Judas' self-righteousness grows from his unbelief, Peter's self-assurance grows out of his pride. Pride, that sense that we are right and others are dumb. The assumption that we are unique and uniquely qualified for this moment. I mean, after all, Peter's carrying a sword, and if things get bad, he knows what to do with it. He's got that thing on him. And yet, what happens? Peter is going to flee and deny just like the rest of them in a spectacular fashion. And so Judas' trap is sprung. The high priest shows up with his guards. They begin to lead Jesus away for his trial. And what happens to the 12? They scatter into the night, except for Peter. Peter begins to follow at a distance. Peter is keeping close enough to know what is happening. In fact, they lead them to the high priest Caiaphas' house and they lead him up to the upper room. So Jesus has gone from one upper room to another and Peter is down below in the courtyard. Think of sort of one of those big uh, Mediterranean houses with an open atrium in the middle. I don't know if atrium is the right sort of word for that, but I think you guys get the picture of that open area in the middle of a Mediterranean house. That's what's going on here. And it's a cool night, so Peter begins to warm himself by the fire. But one of the servant girls sees him and says, hey, you're with Jesus, right? And Peter denies it. For the first time, he denies being with Jesus. And as he does, two things happen. After he denies Jesus, first a rooster crows. And second, he makes his way from the courtyard out to the gateway. That that rooster crowing should have been for him an alarm clock. It should have been a fire alarm going off going, watch out, it's coming. But he doesn't see it. And not only does he not see that, he begins to physically distance himself from Jesus. He is protecting himself. He is relying on himself to make sure that he is secure. But this servant girl won't let it go. 
because all of a sudden she sees him move out from the courtyard. She sees him move out towards the front door of the house and she comes out and points him out to everybody else and says, no, no, you guys, he, he's with Jesus, right? And Peter again denies it. But now the crowd's tipped off. They know what's happening. No, 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 sir. Listen, we hear your accent. You don't talk like you're from around here. You talk like you're from up there. And all the people from up there are with Jesus. It's got to be you. And so this time, the third time, as Peter denies Jesus, he does it by invoking a curse on himself, which is ironic all on its own. But he denies that he even knows who Jesus is. And like clockwork, the rooster crows a second time. Luke adds a detail to this story that Mark doesn't mention, but I think is important. Because however things are set up in this house, this outdoor house, this house with all of these columns and promenades, this house is set up in such a way that Luke tells us in this moment that that rooster crows for the second time, Jesus and Peter are close enough that they can make eye contact in that moment. That Jesus looks at Peter and Peter looks at Jesus as that prophecy comes true. And Peter goes out and he breaks down and he weeps. All of the stories in Mark's gospel, the one that I think I'd like to be a fly on the wall for, the moment I would love to see the playback of is that one to see the face of Jesus as he looks at Peter. What do you think he looked like? What was that look on his face? Because for most of us, as I mentioned that, what just happened to you and I is we all assumed that the look that Peter was given was one of disappointment. That the look that Peter was given was one of shame. I mean, think about what we would do. Think about what we would do in that situation probably throw out that kind of, I told you so, look. But that's not who Jesus is. I mean, think about just a few hours earlier, as Jesus was praying in the garden, as Jesus was weeping and visibly upset, knowing the cup of wrath that he was about to drink, praying to the Father, if it's your will, would you please take this from me? Nevertheless, your will be done. As he comes back from that moment and finds his disciples, who he had asked to just just stay awake and pray for me for a minute. As he comes back to them, does he come back with disappointment? and shame? Is he harsh with them as they can't even pray for an hour? No. Jesus' demeanor is one of compassion. What does he say as he sees them? As he is preparing himself to go through physical and spiritual torture, as the disciples can't even pray for an hour in the face of that, he's not livid like we would be. What does he say to them? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He shows compassion to them. I know you want to pray. I, I know you would totally pray for me for an hour, but your, but your flesh is weak. That's his response in the Garden of Gethsemane. He compassionately moves towards them. And I think, I think that that's the same sort of compassion that Peter would have found in this moment. 
the same sort of compassion that he would have looked at him. Not disappointment, not shaming, not dismissal, love and compassion for what he has done. Beloved, we are all going to struggle in our Christian walk. It's going to happen. We're going to sin. We're going to be disappointed by the way things work out in our lives. And in some of those moments, we're going to falter. We're going to fail. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. We're going to choose pride instead of relying on Jesus. In some of those moments, we're going to choose self-protection instead of self-abandonment. It's going to happen. But in the face of those incredible difficulties that are going to come up in your life and mine, let's remember the face of Jesus. Let's remember his compassion. Let's remember that we do not have a great high priest who cannot be touched by all of our frailties and our infirmities, but was in every way tempted like we are and yet without sin. Let's not forget what the Old Testament tells us about the face of God. What does the Old Testament tell the people of Israel? The people of Israel who messed up so bad that he had them march around the desert to kill off a generation. What does God say about his face to those people? He said to the Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord, make his smile lift up on you. And after the people come back from exile in Babylon, when they refuse to rebuild the temple, when they drag their feet and panel their own houses with wood, what does the prophet Zephaniah say to them about God's face? Faith, face, said it right the first time. What does he say? He says what? The Lord smiles over you. He rejoices over you with song, with loud singing and lullabies. He looks down on you, beloved. Let's be honest about our sin because we believe in the overwhelming grace of Jesus, grace that is greater than all our sin. Let's not hide ourselves away. Let's not hide our sin, but let's be willing to confess Let's fall on the grace of Jesus, even when it seems like it is a rock that will crush us to pieces. Let's trust the face of compassion as he looks at us, just like he looks at Peter. And though we go out weeping, may we keep sowing because of the grace that Jesus has shown to us. Grace even for deniers. Grace even for sinners. Grace even for me and for you. Let's pray.